At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join me for The Bigger Picture today, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, a Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, where would you like to begin today? Um, a really interesting article uh, written by Dan Hannan. Uh, it appeared a few days ago in The Telegraph. It's called After Brexit, We Should Have Gone Swiss. Now we have no option but to go Singaporean. Um, Dan Hannan uh, uh, has long been a pro-Brexiteer. He's a former cons- uh, MEP in the European Parliament, and he's now a, a, a Tory peer in the House of Lords in London. Um This is a good piece because although Dan has long been a Brexiteer, initially uh, he was in favour of Britain leaving the European Union in the political sense. And that's very much because the EU is in no way uh, a democracy. It it just isn't. Uh, Policies emanate uh, from the Commission um, and the Parliament doesn't have a huge say actually, in, in really what goes through. So it's disjointed from, 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 from our sense of democracy. But, but I think what Dan originally thought when, when he was campaigning for Brexit was that Britain would remain a member of the European economic area and um, uh, uh, or, or certainly a member of EFTA, the European Free Trade Association. And, and the reason for that was that that he sensed that Britain was happy to be part of the European family when it came to economics and trade, but they didn't really want the bit that started to develop from the early 1990s onwards, which was the political bit. It was when it stopped being the EEC and became the European Union. Okay. Um, Now, he's arguing, and I think quite cogently, that now that we've left uh, the European Union, it really is, and, and we have the deal that we have, it really is no longer viable uh, for us uh, to be a member of of, of EFTA or, or a sort of have an EEA plus arrangement. That, that, that you know, the, the, the boat has simply set sail. And that therefore, we have to think very clearly about what our role in the world is going to be. And as Tony Blair said a couple of years ago, Britain is going to have to become more Singaporean in its outlook. We may have very high taxes, high regulations, uh, quite a left-wing Tory government in power at the moment. uh, But sooner or later, uh, Britain is going to have to become a more dynamic, higher growth, lower tax and more globally trading a more globally outlooking uh, enterprise country and, and and in a nutshell dan hannon argues in this article that that 
we may have a government or two, uh, and they may press the wrong buttons, but ultimately we're going to have to go in a Singaporean direction if we want to generate the wealth and the income to maintain um, the sort of growth that's going to be required by the NHS pensions and and the welfare state settlement. Um, so for me, it's interesting. I don't disagree with it. Um, I think, like me, Dan Hannan is fairly relaxed about immigration. It does not surprise me at all uh, that since we've left the European Union, immigration numbers have gone up. I was one of the very, very few people who argued that that would happen. Um, I've put it on my Facebook account on numerous times. I've said it on this show, and it's happened. Uh, the difference is that the immigration that we're now seeing uh, is global. Uh, it is not people simply friends from Eastern and Central Europe. Uh, we are attracting uh, uh, talent, very well-educated people uh, from places like India. You know, People have got very good computer and technical skills. People are being attracted here. Uh, and we're going to need that if we want to maintain or sustain the sort of health and welfare settlement that was put in place in the late 1940s. Um, so it's it's sort of an open uh, 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 Singaporean movement with more free, free movement of people, or um, it, it's going to be very, very challenging economics for a very, very long time to come. But in order to go that direction, you need to have a government that steers. And I, I mean, my impression is they're just sort of floating along, bobbing along on the waves. And the, to some extent, they and Starmer, who presumably one must think now sounds pretty impossible that he's not going to be the next prime minister, that I get the impression they seem to believe that wealth is somehow created by the state and they're due to, you know, they parcel out what little bits back to the people they're willing to. This idea of wealth creation, I mean, I, I don't get the impression that any of them seem to understand where it comes from. And bizarrely, although it was a total disaster, the only time I've heard it mentioned is when Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were, you know, their brief, you know, power, period at the top, which was very, very brief, but they were talking about things like that. But when was the last time you heard anybody in in government, yeah. apart from them, ever discuss it, or Starmer, or anybody on the Labour bench. Yeah. Well, it's ironically, I've spoken to a lot of friends of mine uh, who have various positions hmm. in the Labour Party. I've talked to them over the last week. And uh, what's quite shocking is the unanimity, the, the general view that, that they could well find themselves in government um, in two years' time, but they don't think they have... Uh, prepared well for it. They don't think they have the policies or the manifesto. In in, in response to your point, um, I think that if you were to simply listen to most party members, be it Labour or Tory, or indeed mo most backbenchers, then this whole period reminds me of the very, very early 1970s where you had this sense of a looming crisis. Mm. But quite frankly, neither the Heath government nor the Wilson and Callaghan Labour governments were able uh, to put in place uh, the, the the sort of policies and measures um, that, 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 that 
actually was required of them. That was up for Margaret Thatcher. Now, in the situation we're in now, if strategically over the next 5, 10, 15 years, we're going to have to pivot uh, in a more Singaporean direction, um, then it's very difficult to predict which party or tribe uh, will suddenly haul the ship in that direction. Because mark my words, when you fundamentally change direction in your statecraft, um, that will denote an awful lot of upheaval. When Margaret Thatcher uh, started to try and get more money in uh, to the Treasury by reducing the high rates of tax and therefore bringing the state further down the Laffer curve, um, boy, you know, were the, were the consequences of that palpable they, they were they were clear for everyone to see you know when she when she became prime minister very quickly we had brenda dean and sogat 82 we had toxteth riots brixton riots you know we had um the, the first steel strike eventually the miner strike you know really politics polarized uh there was a lot of disagreement when you make a major strategic shift there is a lot of timidity on the part of many people and a lot of um, and a lot of polarization. So this is not going to be easy. I have no idea if we have a Labour government in two years' time. If actually they will make the move already, Keir Starmer is saying that taxes are too high. That um, the Labour Party now has a target of of uh, of seventy percent home ownership, far larger than anything the Conservatives have managed. Not not least because they've been in power well over a decade. Um, um, uh, you know, taxes are too high. Uh, you have a, a shadow uh, Secretary of State for Health who says we're going to have to work more closely with the private healthcare sector. I mean, you're beginning to get serious, you know, Singaporean memes coming from Labour. Now, is that just politicking to win power or could that turn into something? I can't predict. But um, I do think that strategically, given we've left the European Union, A, we should not be surprised that immigration has gone up and that that immigration really is somewhat global <laughs> um uh, and that b uh at some point we're going to have to uh have a much more wealth creating a much more dynamic economy um when that will come i don't know but if, if you go by national audit office data uh and other reputable sources then the levels of of pensions health and welfare that we currently have, they will simply become unsustainable over the next 10 or 20 years, uh, given current economic norms. So we're going to have which, to do... Something. Which, of course, is something you could have said 10 years ago or even 20 years ago, and opportunities to to grasp those particular nettles have been um, ignored every step along the way. And it seems no politician wants to do anything brave enough to rock the boat. It, it, wasn't it something Juncker said? Yes, we know what to do. We just don't know how to get re-elected when we do it. Exactly. And it was Mark Law, the Estonian prime minister, uh, who sort of realised in the early 90s where his country had to go in the post-Soviet world. Um, and so he enacted, uh, you know, a huge array of privatisation, deregulation, contracting out uh, he uh, implemented by far the world's most advanced um forms of electronic government mm. 
Um, and he was very, very unpopular in the opinion polls. And when a television interviewer said to him, Mark, you know, Prime Minister, if you carry on like this, you won't be re-elected. And his retort was, uh, I'm not here to be re-elected. I'm here to do the right thing. And of course, he was re-elected. Um, now, in a sense, that was all right for Mark Lyle to do that as Prime Minister, because his country had gone off a cliff anyway. Um, you know, they'd broken away from the collapse of, of the Soviet Union. Um, the point is that when the crisis comes and when it hits hard enough, uh, it's in those moments uh, that people often do things that, that many of us think are yes. previously unimaginable. Yes. That's where I think there is a degree of optimism. Um, that's when the sunnier up plans occur. Tim, thank you. Time for us to change subject. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Simon Rhodes. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, what have you chosen as your second subject this week? Uh, my second subject is uh, from The Guardian. It's a piece by Michael Savage. He's their policy editor. And it's called Senior Tories Demand Sunak Ditches Mindless Crackdown on Overseas Students. Um, one of the most bizarre moves of this government, and for me, this is an increasingly bizarre uh, conservative government. I mean, with every iteration, it just becomes more and more uh, ludicrous, I have to say. Um, the Basically, as we all know, our university sector, uh, it, 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 you know, is a jewel in the crown. Uh, it is highly achieving. It is highly sought after. Um, uh, students pay their fees. In many places, they come from all over the world. Uh, we don't just teach people um, and educate them so that often they're able to go back to their own homes, to their own countries, um, and, and do things better, but also... Uh, when they come to the United Kingdom, they meet local people here. They come to understand, uh, um, you know, how we do things here. That we do diversity very well, and that our universities are actually an extraordinary platform. Dare I say it, for British influence and for soft power. And it's a two-way thing, of course. They, you know, they spend their money here. They want to come here. They want to engage with with our university sector. Um, they give a lot to it because they bring their cultures, their ideas, uh, their 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 perspectives, uh, and 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 then hopefully they take an awful lot um, and and go off into the global economy. Mm. And and often, of course, when when you are an overseas student, you pay more than than the domestic population do so uh often you know they they enable us to invest in our facilities in our technology um in in all kinds of research 
Um, and they're prepared to do it because the reputation, the education they receive is, is world-class. And of course, it's in this moment where um, this government uh, is now threatening to uh, really reduce, to clamp down, to crack down, to mandate um, reductions um, in student numbers. These are not people who are coming here um, as illegal immigrants. These are not people here who are seeking uh, welfare. These are not people uh, coming here uh, because they don't have skills or are not interested in education. Uh, these people are the cream. These are the people who often, as we see at my university, whose families pull together, they save money, um, you know, they form capital to invest in the next generation. And uh, for me, it's very sad because if it was ever put through, which I don't think it will be, but if it was, uh, it will damage our university sector. It will damage that two-way flow of of dialogue and discourse and understanding. Um, and uh, it will mean that we simply hand opportunities to yeah. competitors, particularly to our friends in North America. Um and, and, and the saddest thing, I think, of all, uh, to conclude on this point, uh, for the, my opening remarks are, yes, it would be, you know, it potentially they could do this, they could do it easily. The really tough stuff, of course, is illegal immigration. Uh, it is uh, the people who are coming here for not such good or healthy reasons. Um, um, uh, but, you know, it, they could change the law, uh, they could mandate this, they could penalise universities, and maybe it would play well with certain sections of the electorate, uh, but it would, in a sense, be um, uh, stitching up the numbers. It would be um, tampering uh, with because um, uh, I don't think that the public that section of the, of the I don't think that section of the electorate who are concerned with high immigration. I've never heard anyone say, oh dear, you know, all those um, all those PhD students from India who want to yes, come here and do yes, PhD, yes, you know, yes. and to aid, to aid the British computer sector. You know, I don't, I, I don't really hear that in the pub, I have to say, Simon. So, but it's just I, I, I have a friend who's a university lecturer who was just waxing lyrical the other day about how many of her students were overseas and how, how exciting she found the sessions and how, how you know refreshing it was hearing people from different parts of the world getting into these animated conversations. So clearly, if people are objecting to immigration, the, it's the illegal immigration, which still puts immense pressure on various infrastructures in, in within the UK, because we're so bad at planning for... And what to do about more people, bad at planning new hospitals, bad at planning new roads, bad at planning absolutely everything, frankly, in the, this country. Presumably, that's hard for them to deal with. It would be a doddle for them just to say we can't have as many overseas students. You think that's simply the reason they're doing it? They, they're not tackling the hard stuff that people are objecting to and which, you know, is appalling price in terms of, uh, you know, human cost of, of life. Um, rather than doing something that you know, actually would require a bit of gumption and some hard work on their part. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, um, uh, this is really, really grubby politics with very, very grubby optics. Um, I, I suspect that this is number 10 Downing Street um, flying a kite um, uh, and just testing the waters. 
yeah. I don't think it's going to go that far because it's so grubby and it would be so counterproductive. I mean, let me put it this way. Your friend, you mentioned your friend who's lecturer. One of the reasons I work at Middlesex University, and I'm so delighted and honoured to, to work there, is because we are the world's 15th most diverse university. And as I always say to friends, when I go to one of our quads, um, I go to work and I can meet the world. I can meet you know people with endlessly different you know belief systems and uh and, and perspectives and that really you know that charges my battery i really yes. enjoy that it gives me energy um what i think is would be catastrophic is that at a time where britain is talking the talk of a global britain um, and, you know, and where we have the Labour Party who are increasingly talking about we need a dynamic economy, we need public-private partnerships, you know, you're increasingly getting a good vibe from, from His Majesty's opposition. Nevertheless, we have the reality here that the aid budget has been cut, um, that we're talking trade, but we're not quite delivering it. And in that ecosystem... The further, even to fly the kite where we would damage um, British soft power, I find ludicrous. You know, I often think that if we can gift um, that exchange of ideas, if we can help people from other countries, often countries that still have a long way to grow and develop themselves, and we can help them with their undergraduates and to enhance their research capabilities and all those things, then that actually, from one point of view, can almost be not just the gift of knowledge, but one of the finest forms of aid you could ever engage in. And and that, for me, is what I find so offensive about this this kite flying from the government. Yes, as you say, flying a kite. Though These days, if Downing Street flew a kite, you'd be worried they'd be running backwards and fall off the cliff while they're trying to get in the air um uh, we've got one topic we haven't got much time left though tim i know it's awful to ask you to, to be relatively brief but i think you want to talk a little bit about um uh, what's been going on in china and, and and whether somehow um china not doing as well as we once thought it was going to might be to india's benefit indeed i think i mean it, it, we've talked uh, in recent weeks simon um about the problems that China is facing, not just with go COVID, but in, in terms of governance and the you know the the the, the strategic hole that they put themselves in. Um, increasingly now, the data is coming through. India uh, is really moving forward when it comes to replacing China in all kinds of supply chain areas. India, of course, has uh, the ascendant demographics. You know, they're going to be heading towards a population of 1.4, 1.5 billion, as China has now turned the corner and is having a decreasing population. Uh, China is is increasingly embroiled in all kinds of, you know, grubby politics, whether it's the Uyghur people, Hong Kong. India actually remains the world's, uh, um, you know, largest uh, and, and ultimately most successful by scale uh, democracy. So you're beginning now to get really interesting articles on on really important platforms like Bloomberg, where they're saying India's economic ascendance may happen this time, and but it's very much couched increasingly in terms of um, you know China's economy zoomed past India back 
back in the 1990s, but India's catching up and and India could indeed overtake um, China, certainly in the 2040s, 2050s. So, you know, this is why I'm I'm loath to predict these things, but I've I've often been skeptical over the years of people who have said that it's inevitable that China's going to become, you know, the rival superpower, the dominant player. I've never been convinced that they have the statecraft, the governance, and the secret source for stability. India strikes me as a country that has all kinds of circulating elites. They have democracy. They have the demographics right. They've got a booming uh, middle class there. Um, the press is free. You know, you, 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 there's a free exchange of ideas in India, um, uh, which you don't have in China. So I just have to wonder, um, as as people certainly in the economics world start to look to India as a potential rival to China, and as the real success story of the 21st century, for me, it's certainly one to keep an eye on. I'm increasingly positive about India, and I'm increasingly pessimistic about China. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we've been listening to Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in uh, London. Tim will be back for me with the bigger picture in a fortnight's time with Mike Indian um, next week. Tim, thank you very much indeed. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.